If you have your Bibles this morning, please turn to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, verse number one. I've been preaching on getting back to the basics. And this morning we're going to get back to the basics of faith. Hebrews chapter 11, verse number one. Carl Sagan was a very well-known celebrity especially among scientists several years ago. He hosted a TV series called Cosmos, or Cosmos, if you'd rather pronounce it that way. I didn't know that is the most watched program to ever ever air on public television. Carl Sagan was an astronomer, a cosmologist, an astrophysicist, an astrobiologist. And he would start each one of the programs off by saying this, the cosmos is all that is, or was, or ever will be. Carl Sagan was an atheist. And after his death in 1996, his widow was interviewed. I wanted to know, did did Carl have a change of heart before he died? Did he... What they basically asked him was, didn't Carl want to believe? And his widow said, Carl didn't want to believe. He wanted to know. There are people who just believe and there are people who know. In Carl Sagan's cosmos, you have to take your pick. Knowing is what can be proved with scientific certainty. Believing is something you require no evidence for. Mark Twain summed up the idea this way. Faith is believing what you know ain't so. Is that true? Is our Christian faith just something we believe because we want to? Do we believe it just as wishful thinking? I want to examine that issue this morning. Specifically, from one verse in the Bible that sums up what faith is all about. Stand with me, please, and follow along as we read Hebrews chapter 11, verse number 1. This is the word of our God. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, everything we know about you, We know by faith. Every day that we live, and we live successfully for you, we live by faith. And Lord, I know that the world doesn't think much of faith. Not the faith that we think about. But Lord, it is so crucial that we remember that our faith is not an empty promise. Our faith is not just a personal opinion. Our faith is based on reality. And I pray this morning that you'll please strengthen each person's faith that's here. And maybe if there's someone here who does not believe the gospel, does not believe what they cannot see, your spirit will speak to their hearts. Maybe if there's someone struggling with doubts this morning, 
Doubts about you. Doubts about prayer. Doubts about the reality of heaven. Doubts about our faith. That their faith will be strengthened as well. Oh Lord, speak to us. For unless you speak to us, Lord, we, we're wasting our time here. We've got to have your spirit speak to us. And I believe you will and I pray you will as I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. One of those old-timey preachers is getting hot and heavy into his first service of revival. And he asked the congregation, he says, how many of you are Baptists? And everybody raises their hand. Everybody but one little lady there in the front. Front pew, she's sitting. She doesn't stand. He says, ma'am, are you not a Baptist? She says, no, I'm a Methodist. Why are you a Methodist? Well, my father and mother were Methodists. And my grandparents were Methodists. My husband was a Methodist. Preacher says, well... Suppose your parents and grandparents and husband were all idiots. He said, well, if my parents and grandparents and husband were all idiots, that would make me a Baptist. <laughs> Why do you believe what you believe? Is it because of the way you were raised? Is it because you were born in America? Is it just a matter of personal preference, what you choose to believe? Or is it what you know? The book of Hebrews is written to people who are on the fence. They are struggling with their faith. They're trying to decide if they are going to keep on walking with Jesus or they're going to turn their back. And the author of Hebrews is challenging them, saying, think through not just what you believe, think through what you know. Hebrews 11.1 1, describes how you know by faith. First of all, it says faith is confidence in what we hope for. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. The NIV says faith is the confidence in what we hope for. I like the way the CSB translated. Faith is the reality of what is hoped for. Now, when you talk about hope, it's usually about something that hasn't happened yet. You hope that when you get your taxes filled out and you send it to the IRS, you hope they send you some money back. You hope you get your drain fixed before it rains again. Something you want to happen and you want to be true. What do we hope for? We hope for life. We hope for life. Film director Woody Allen was once asked, do you want to achieve immortality through your work in film? He said, I do not want to achieve immortality through my work. I want to achieve immortality by not dying. We're all like that, aren't we? We want to go on living. Now, I know there's some people say that they want to die, but... They're sick in their body, and they're sick in their mind. 
The vast majority of us want to keep on living. Even though we know death is a reality, but we want to think that's not the end. Listen to people chatting at a funeral and talk about how the deceased is in a better place, how they're not suffering anymore. They don't deny that that person's dead, but they want to believe that somewhere, somehow, they are still alive. Where does that desire come from? Is it just an animal instinct? Or is there something deeper? Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 11, speaking of God, says he has made everything beautiful in its time. He has put eternity in their hearts. The Bible says God puts this hope, this hope to outlive death. We all hope for life. We all hope for forgiveness. Atheist Margarita Lasky once said, What I envy most about you Christians is your forgiveness. I have nobody to forgive me. Every human heart bears its own burden of guilt. You've done wrong and you knew you were doing wrong when you did it. Sometimes you wrong others, sometimes you wrong yourself. And at some point you realize no amount of apologies, no amount of money, no amount of sorrow can make it right. How do you learn to live with that? A lot of us have had times when we were haunted by guilt. You wish you could find someone to forgive you, someone that can free you, someone that can assure you that you have been forgiven. We hope for forgiveness. We hope for wholeness. Tim Sanders writes, if you take your life and all the things you think are important, you put it in one of three categories, three categories, glass, metal, and rubber. You think of rubber, when you drop something, it bounces back. Missing a game or a season of football will not alter my marriage, will not alter my spiritual life. I can take them or leave them. If something happens, I can bounce back. Things of metal, when dropped, create a lot of noise, but you can still recover. If you don't balance your checkbook, you lose track of how much money you've spent, the bank will send you a, a wonderful little note telling you, that you've overdrawn. Well, that creates a lot of noise in your life, but you can recover from it. But things of glass, when dropped, shatter. They shatter into pieces, and they will never be the same again. They are altered forever. It affects your whole life. And yet, even those things that shatter, even those things that are broken, we say, there's got to be some way. There's got to be some way to put it back together again. There's got to be some way to restore it to wholeness. All of us carry a brokenness. It may be physical. It may be a chronic pain, a broken body. Could be a broken heart, broken relationship. And you want to believe there is healing. You want to believe that your body can be made whole again. You want to believe that your broken heart can be mended. You want to be believe that you can be reconciled with the one you love. We hope for wholeness. We hope for life. We hope for forgiveness. And finally, we hope for love. Deep within every heart is a desire to be loved. 
Not just love for what we appear to be, but love for who we really are. We want to be able to love other people. We want to care and be cared for. We want to cherish and be cherished. Author George Sand writes, there's only one happiness in life, to love and be loved. Those are just a few of the many things we hope for. We don't, we don't just dream about them. We don't just wish for them. We want some confidence. We want some foundation. Some way of saying this is real. Faith is where you find that assurance. It's where you find that confidence. But the next question is how can you know? This is what you want. This is what you hope for. It's what you believe. But how do you know for sure? Well, you have to examine the evidence. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, the conviction of things not seen, the proof of what is not seen. There is proof that what we hope for is a reality. Things that we cannot see are real. You say, well, Brother Mike, people don't do that. People only believe what they see. Well, scientist goes out, finds some bones of a dinosaur, and he puts the bones together, and then he draws a picture. He draws a picture of what the dinosaur looks like. But you know, he's never seen a dinosaur. He's never seen one dinosaur. If a man is accused of murder, even though nobody saw it with their own eyes, the evidence can find him guilty or find him innocent. Just as evidence presented to the jury can make our case, we can make a case to prove what is not seen. Exhibit A is the world around us. Some people make fun of the fact that we believe God created everything. But let me ask you this question. Maybe you want to pose this question to them. Does it make more sense to believe God created everything, or does it make more sense to believe that nothing created everything? Which one of those two make the most sense? You look around you, you look at the stars shining like diamonds in the sky. You take a peek in a microscope and look at the intricate design of a cell. The only reason that we have science at all is because scientists realize there's some order here. There's some pattern here. that It can't have possibly just happened. And I know they try to tell you that most scientists don't believe in God. Well, don't believe that. Because there are a lot of scientists that do believe in God, certainly throughout history. They would never have studied science if they didn't believe there was a God that put it all together. One of the giants of science was Sir Isaac Newton. Many of his discoveries are still the basis for modern physics. He had a friend of his uh, come in one day. Uh, Isaac Newton had created this uh, model of the solar system. And he put the sun at the center and the planets around the side. And somehow mechanically, he'd gotten them to where they were uh, revolving around the sun. And they were rotating on their axis. It's really amazing machine. And he had an atheist friend visit him one time. And he said, Isaac, 
This is marvelous. I've never seen anything like this. Who made it? Isaac Newton said, nobody. Nobody made it. Isaac, you must think I'm a fool. Of course someone made it. And they're a genius. Newton smiles and says to his friend, this thing is a puny imitation of a much grander original. The real solar system is much more amazing and marvelous than this poor model. And you realize somebody had to make the copy, but you refuse to realize that somebody had to create the original. Is there any evidence, evidence of what we cannot see? Look around you. You see it everywhere. Exhibit B are the historical records. One of the things that I enjoy doing whenever my wife allows me, when we're traveling on the road and we come up on a plaque beside the road, well, I want to know why it's there. You know, I'm assuming that something happened there. And I want to go find out what it is. These plaques commemorate historical events. Well, how do you know? How do you know they happened? <laughs> how do you know George Washington slept there? How do you know this is where the Civil War began? How do you know where the Trail of Tears winds? The only reason you know is because somebody saw it and they wrote it down. They recorded it. That's the only way you know for sure anything happened in history. Because none of us were there. None of us saw it. Bundled together with the historical records is a record we call the Bible. It claims to be a record. It does not claim to be a book of legends. It claims to be a book of history. The history of the creation of the world, Moses calling down plagues, David and Goliath. And ever so often, if you read about archaeologists, they'll say, well, you know, the Bible says this. There's no way. There's just no way. We've never seen any proof of that. Uh, it can't possibly be true. For many, many years, they said, you know, the Bible talks about David. There's no record of David. There's no you know, there's no way anybody could believe that there was actually a man, king of Israel named David. At least they believed that until 1993. When they found a little inscription from a stone, listen to this, 10 centuries old. And guess what it says on it? From the house of David. Bible was proved right. They were proved wrong. One of the most amazing historical events the Bible records is this baby who was born in Bethlehem. And he grows up and becomes a miracle-working preacher. And he claims to be God with a big G. The records say he was killed, murdered by his enemies. But the records also say people saw him after he came back to life. In Luke chapter 1, he explains to his patron why he's writing, and as much as is taken in hand to set in order a narrative of these things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses. 
Luke didn't just dream all this up in his head. He went and found people that saw it. People experienced it. And he said, I want to write an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of the things in which you were instructed. Now, I'm not going to tell you there aren't people who still doubt. What I want to know is if a person doubts, if it's not true, how do you explain it? How do you explain the birth of a baby that changes all of human history if he didn't exist? You mean we have changed every second of our time because of somebody that didn't live? How do you explain the people who were healed? How do you explain people who gave their lives, died, because they kept saying, this man rose from the dead? Whatever you believe, you have to deal with what these people claim to have seen. You have to ask yourself, what if it's true? Exhibit A is the world around us. Exhibit B is the historical record. Exhibit C is personal experience. One of the most important pieces of evidence in any personal trial is what the witness has seen and heard for themselves. Even though nobody alive today witnessed the events in the first century, millions, billions of people can testify from experience how this Jesus that you can't see changed their lives. They testify how he gives them the confident hope of a never-ending life. John 11:25 he says I'm the resurrection and the life he who believes in me though he may die he shall live. They tell how he offers them the confident hope of forgiveness Ephesians 1:7 in him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Many of them can tell you how they found confident hope for healing their brokenness. Acts 10.38 says, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power who went about doing good, healing all who are pressed by the devil. How many could testify how Jesus gave them a love beyond what anything they would ever know? We have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. These are not just words on a page. They are not just religious myths. They are not only believed by ignorant, superstitious people. If you take the time to check throughout history, some of the most brilliant minds in all of history, science, psychology, any branch you want to look at, they believe this. They testify from personal experience that Jesus is the God and Savior of the world. As Acts 1-3 says, he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs. Well, preacher, if that's the evidence, why doesn't everybody believe God? Why do so many people reject the gospel? Why do so many refuse to hope? I want to suggest to you that it is not a lack of evidence It's not that they cannot believe. 
It's a rejection of the evidence. It's that they will not believe. When Carl Sagan's widow says he did not want to believe, he wanted to know what Sagan and his wife didn't realize is that you can believe and know. He could have known because he believed. That's true for you and me. Faith is not just about accepting the facts. It's about accepting the Savior. Elton Trueblood once said, Faith is not belief without evidence. It is trust without reservation. The substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, it does not just change your mind. It changes your life. This is how you are confident of what you hope for. The hope you have for a life that never ends. The hope you have for forgiveness of your sins. The hope for healing from your brokenness. The hope for a love that never fails. This is the evidence. But it does not become real for you until it becomes personal experience. Until the moment that you put your faith in Christ. Would you bow your heads with me, please?